Welcome to the Women's Wellness Psychiatry Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Glazer, MD, a reproductive and integrative psychiatrist here to help you make sense of the complex world of women's mental health. If your goal is to improve your emotional well-being, find fulfillment, and feel like your best self, you're in the right place. Welcome, my listener friends. I have a great episode for you today. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Famayua on the important topic of fertility preservation, particularly for those who've had a life-changing diagnosis of cancer. Dr. Oluyasima Famayua is the founder of Montgomery Fertility Center and an associate clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at George Washington University School of Medicine. She's an advocate for personalized fertility care. She's been recognized with numerous awards, including the Castle Connolly Top Doctor Award since 2012, and most recently nominated as one of the women who move Maryland. Dr. Famayewa is a staunch advocate for fertility preservation, especially in cancer patients. She has numerous publications in peer-reviewed journals and participates with the Oncofertility Consortium as both a clinician and a co-author. Take a listen now to my interview with Dr. Famayewa. Thank you so much, Dr. Famuyua, for joining me today for this podcast episode. I really appreciate your taking the time and sharing your expertise. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Great, great. Why don't we start with kind of the basics? Could you please tell listeners a bit about what it is that you do? Okay, so my name is Dr. Famuyua. I'm the medical director of Montgomery Fertility Center. I'm a fertility specialist. But I also do a lot of fertility preservation, both for patients who are socially trying to preserve their fertility for medical reasons as well, and also for cancer patients who are about to go through chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Now, could you explain a little bit more about what fertility preservation is? Thank you for asking. Well... Fertility preservation is a way to preserve the most valuable, the most, the youngest eggs that a woman has. The, the issue is every woman is actually born with all the eggs they will ever have. Only men continue to produce sperm. And as a matter of fact, the eggs that you have, the most you'll ever have is when you're about five months old in your mother's womb. That's usually around six to seven million. By the time a woman's born, a lot of that would have died off to about two million. Of that two million, only about 200,000 will be there when a woman actually starts to menstruate and go through menarche. And of this, probably only about 4% will ever ovulate. So the issue is there's rapid depletion of the eggs that a woman has. The few that she has actually continue to age and are not as proficient in producing babies as a woman gets older. Now, when you add the insult of chemotherapy to this, well, you're about, you know, racing to zero by the time those women may decide to have children. So fertility preservation is a way to preserve some of the best eggs at a time when they're still available, so they can be used to produce a baby at a later age. 
Well, I imagine that it's not necessarily something that many cancer patients think about when they're getting yes. that devastating cancer diagnosis. Absolutely, yes. So I think it's so important that that we're talking about it now uh, to kind of raise that awareness. Absolutely. You know, when a woman is given a diagnosis of cancer, as a matter of fact, that's probably all you hear, that, yes. that, that word cancer, that's it. The brain mm-hmm. shuts down, everything shuts down. It's the C word. It's devastating, absolutely devastating. So the last thing on their mind is, oh my gosh, I might have to run, you know, save some of my eggs. I might need chemotherapy. I might need radiation therapy. I might need surgery. They don't think about that, right? And of course, the partners, family members, parents, spouses, they're just, they just want their loved one to survive, right? So the last thing everybody's thinking about is maybe we should save some eggs before this person goes through it. So it's a very devastating news. And I think that's where the medical field can come into play, that we can be the shepherd, the guide. We can be that firm, reassuring voice that, yes, you do have cancer. However, there are some issues that we should talk about, no matter how difficult these issues are. And one of them is, would you consider freezing your eggs? You know, because we know now that cancer is in most, in some cases, treatable. It's treatable. And a lot of women survive cancer. Mm -hmm. And they survive it. They thrive. They're cancer survivors, right? So they do come out of this dark, gloomy storm. And on the other end is, is, is calm and sunshine. And now, you know, wow, I, I made it. Life is good. There is life after. Whoa, maybe I might want to have a family. Oh, gee, I didn't think about it. No one mentioned it. No one brought it up. So we should be having these conversations because cancer is survivable in, in most cases. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, so I'm really glad that we are having this conversation. And you mentioned you used the word egg freezing. It sounds like that's yes. the primary way of doing that yes. kind of fertility preservation. Correct. Can you share with us a little bit more about what that process is like and what some of the obstacles are that patients might encounter during that kind of process? Sure. Egg free- freezing is, is trying to save some of the eggs that might be destroyed either through chemotherapy, cancer treatment, or just with natural aging, right? It's Mm -hmm. one of the ways. In much younger patients, you can actually freeze slices of the ovary itself, cortical freezing. And, and, And I think the earliest cases was done on babies where they try to save a sliver of the ovarian cortex that contains some granulosa cells and some oocytes. And then, and then cryopreserve that. But most people, when they think of egg freezing, think of a grown woman, right? Mm-hmm. So I tell patients, you have a fixed number of eggs. They are lying in a dormant state, right? They're dormant. Mm-hmm. In birth and the time you start your menstrual cycle, these eggs are dormant. Those quiescent dormant cells have three things that could happen to them. One, they could die because they're very sensitive to any environmental insults. 
So mm-hmm. if the DMA is damaged, an environmental, environmental insult happens, they can be processed to the pathway of what is called apoptosis or cell death, a way of cleaning up damaged cells. Another way is to remain dormant, and they can remain dormant all the way, you know, to close to menopause for all that matter. For that. They can now be activated. They can be called upon to proceed through the process of maturation. And that usually occurs over some 300 days before they even get ready to be responsive to the brain's hormones that could possibly trigger ovulation. Now, what I always tell patients is these follicles, if they become activated, they go through a phase of what I what is termed gonadotropin independent growth, meaning they're independent of any regulation by the brain. And they'll grow from, you know, undetectable size, about eight to nine millimeters. And if there's no signal from the brain at that point, they will die off. So once they are called into action, once they are activated, if they are not stimulated and picked up around eight to nine millimeters, they'll die off. Okay. Now, once a month, the brain will cycle enough local stimulating hormone from the pituitary gland. Some, you know, it goes, gets sent to the ovary. And if it sees some of these follicles that are around eight to nine, meaning they're ready to be responsive to the FSH, it selects a basket of eggs. Out of this basket of eggs, it will select one to ovulate. Okay. Mm-hmm. But then, it tosses away the rest of the basket. Hmm. And then you have the same thing happen the next month. So when you think of fertility preservation or egg freezing, what you're doing is you are going to rescue that basket that's about to be tossed. And you're going to freeze some of that. You're not hastening the process of, of, of egg depletion. You're just capturing some of the follicles that would necessarily be tossed aside anyway. That's what we mean by by egg freezing. Thank you so much for that really eloquent description. And I really like the the comparison to, you know, you're you're just putting them all in in a basket. And I, I think it just because it it also makes sense because we think about, you know, like Easter eggs in a basket. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so what are some things that maybe patients are surprised to learn during this process of harvesting and freezing the eggs? I think most people, once they get over their shock, they now have to go, oh, gee, what do I do? Well, you know, if it's a cancer patient, we don't have the luxury of saying, well, we're going to start trying to preserve your eggs, oh, starting with your menstrual cycle will make a perfect calendar of stimulation. We might, you know, pre-treat you with some estrogen before or birth control pills before and then start treatment. We don't always have that luxury. What we can do. Yes, we don't. We don't have the luxury of time. So what we do, so what we do instead is we simply just start stimulate, stimulating them wherever they are in time. So. One of the ways to do this is to use a medication called letrozole. It also has the added advantage of not producing too much estradiol because people are worried about 
Well, if I stimulate and the patient produces a lot of estrogen, are you going to fuel or drive the cancer more? Well, right. There are certain medications you can use that you don't get a high estrogen response. And then you, you, you stimulate whatever follicles are about to be activated and you can collect them. And in some cases, you can swing right back into stimulating them with the same medication and do a double collection or even a triple collection. Because sometimes you don't always get enough, enough mature egg that you feel comfortable may yield a child or even maybe they want two children or three in the future. So you just want to rapidly get as many eggs as you can in the shortest amount of time before they head to chemotherapy. Okay. And when we connected previously, you described a a really poignant case of a woman who's going through this process that you just illustrated to us. Yes. And I think that Maybe our listeners can learn quite a bit from that particular example. Yes, yes. Can you share that with us today? Oh, absolutely. She's she's a, a wonderful person. She, I think, was about 28-ish years old when she, you know, she just got married, you know, found the love of her life, got married, and boom, noticed a nodule, went to the doctors, they diagnosed cancer. It took a while for her to get follow-up because she didn't have insurance. Then when they did the biopsy, they noticed she had a lymph node that was positive. So she was told that they would need to give her chemotherapy first before doing surgery because they were concerned about the lymph node involvement. Mm -hmm. Well, there started the problem. So she calls around. She's, you know, her doctor says, you, well, her actually, her primary care doctor was a friend of mine called me. And says, you know, I have this patient. Can you help her? It's absolutely, you know, please send her over. So we was doing with her and she said, I don't have any money. I don't have any funds. I, I, I don't know where to turn to. So the first thing I go is, you know, don't worry about paying me. You know, I mean, we can do this at cost. We'll do this as a pro bono case. However, we will need things like medication. You need certain lab work that has to be done prior to the stimulation. She didn't have enough funds for that. Mm -hmm. So we turned to a lot of different organizations to try to help her, some of which may actually help fertility patients, only to be told, well, you're not an infertility patient, you're a cancer patient. So our funds are really not for this. Okay, well, then let's turn to some bigger practices. Maybe they have more funds that might help patients. I think she called around four or five different places to get help. And it was, I was very stunned that there were no resources. One of the ways we were able to get her labs done was to get a primary care doctor to do the labs that she would need prior to preservation and try to use some insurance funds for that. And would you believe it doesn't, she has Medicaid, it doesn't cover, at least it hasn't started yet, cover fertility preservation in cancer patients. Right. So I, I called the pharmacy that we normally work with, with some of our self-pay patients. I said, listen, can you help us out? We're trying to, trying to help this lady. And, you know, what can you do about getting her medications, maybe samples or discounts? They look for different programs and I think we could get her a coupon discount or something. And fortunate enough, I had some samples in the office and I said, well, you know, if you want to get started, I can help you out here. But 
it was really hard, really sad because it was just the two of them and, and they didn't have any local family. They didn't know who to turn to. And they were trying to deal with all this without, without support it was very hard. Yeah. 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 And I think that's so powerful to also just think about, you know, finances and costs can definitely be yes. well in infertility in general, but it sounds like, you know, additional challenges here because of some of the definitions that insurance companies and whatnot have for what that exactly. means and, and who qualifies. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's, it's really amazing that, you know, you had to, to knock on so many doors to, to, to get her help. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, for her. I'm sorry. Sounds like you really worked hard to advocate for her. Yes, we did. And we were able to get her started and actually do two cycles actually, and then turned her over to chemotherapy. Now, interesting, there, there is data that's coming out saying that taking a month or two, maybe even three to proceed with egg freezing prior to chemotherapy does not have an adverse effect on outcome. Hmm. Right. So there is that data now. So we can. Yeah. Hit the pause button a little bit and try to do something for this woman. The taking one or two months off to do this doesn't have any impact on the outcome. That's really important, I think. Yes. There's often yes. a sense of, you know, every single day matters. Yes. But yes. I think what is often forgotten is, you know, the the grief and loss. Yes. Um, with fertility loss, because you have the emotional toll of the cancer, but then you also have that coupled with you know, the grief that comes with fertility loss. And yes. So I'm curious about your thoughts about the psychology of, of grief and loss in these individuals. I think initially most women are shell shocked, yeah. right? For instance, like in the case of my patients, she had a whole swarm of doctor's offices and radiology studies and lab exams and going from one facility to the other, seeing one specialist after the other. So her life revolved around a whole calendar of what she had to do for her treatment. Now, let's not forget that a lot of these women were jobs that require their physical presence for them to actually be paid. So on top of having to pay for co-insurances, co-payments, expensive medications, they can't work. They can't work to recoup some of these losses because they have to go get an MRI or they have to go get an X-ray or they need to go get blood drawn. And all of these are happening during daylight hours when they may have to be at work. So I think that just compounds. I think most people are just shell-shocked. And when they are able to stop and pause, it's really hard for them. We did encourage her to to find support groups. Her husband was extremely supportive and and present Mm -hmm. for her. And, you know, encouraged them not to be alone because it's hard. You know, I for them to be to get some sunshine, to get some get stay out, get go outdoors, and and not stay indoors mm-hmm. all the time, so they can expand their world a little bit beyond the eminent problem that they are dealing with. But but it's hard. 
And I I couldn't imagine this young lady without the presence of her husband. It it would have been worse, I think. And so it sounds like one one piece of advice that you have for those who are struggling with some of these challenges is also to really make sure that they're focusing on taking care of themselves, you know, psychologically, emotionally. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know. All of yes. those things. Yes. You what know, take, yeah. Yeah. I take time to, to cook nutritious meals. Take mm-hmm. time to go for a walk. Go out. You know, I'm an outdoor person. I love nature. I think nature heals all. Yes. So go out in nature a little bit. Reach out to your local church. Participate. Reach out. If friends want to help you, let them. The ones that are supportive. If you have family around you, let them. And also reach out to to support groups. There are social workers involved in their care who can help them join support groups, right? So if you don't have a family member around or an immediate friend, there are some support groups that that women can join and look into. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, take care of yourself, eat nutritious foods, spend time in nature. Fulfill yourself, you know, psychologically and spiritually. Yes. Support. Now, do you have any advice for the friends and family and loved ones who are supporting their person through these challenges? Yes, that is extremely important. Don't try to explain it away, right? Mm -hmm. Don't try to say, well, it's going to be okay. Maybe they don't want to hear that, right? Mm -hmm. Don't try to offer advice that is not necessarily asked for. But I think the most important thing, and and one of the things I did see with my patient was be there. Just be Mm -hmm. there. Be there to hold their hands. Be there. Be present. Even just being in the same room, you don't have to talk. When they are ready to talk, when they are ready to open up, they will. But be there. Be that calm presence that 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 calm in the storm for them, you know, and and I think that's probably one of the best things that friends and family can do. That makes sense, and and really just kind of holding their hand, both yes. literally and figuratively. Exactly, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yes, yes. What about for the clinicians out there? I'm curious what advice you might have because I think there's a lot of clinicians out there who work with patients who either might be going through this or may have gone through something like this yes and yes. don't necessarily have thoughts about fertility yes. top of mind exactly well you know i think we are reaching out to our oncology colleagues and say yes we know that what you're doing is extremely critical extremely important and more so you are also extremely busy and you probably have a lot of patients to deal with and and you may not have the extra two minutes or three minutes, but understand that there are your local fertility practitioners out there that are willing to help. So, you know, you reach out to any one of them. Most places have a program to accommodate this and, and not just work with one, work with, God knows there are so many of them now, work with three or four because you know, when you're dealing with fertility preservation, you don't have time to to call, tell a patient, well, my appointment, my next appointment is, you know, five weeks from now or six weeks from now, right? You're going to take them in right away. So if you work with more than one clinic, that gives you the flexibility to say, okay, who has an opening? 
who can get, get my patient in? Like in my patient's case, I think one of the first clinics she called, they gave her an appointment for like, you know, three or four months mm-hmm. before her doctor called me. And I said, sure, I'll, yeah, I'll see her right now. I'll, you know, get her on Zoom. I'll, I'll, you know, I told my staff, you know, first priority, let's, let's get her in. Let's, you know, do what we need to do. And, and I worked hand in hand with her doctor to make sure she got her labs. I took it as priority. I was fortunate enough to have that, you know, but if I'm not, if I don't have an availability, I'll let them know, hey, you know, call, you know, this other clinic here and call that other clinic. Between all the clinics around, somebody will get her in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So developing those relationships. Yes. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your expertise. Are there any other pearls of wisdom that you would love to share with our listeners? And of course, please also share where listeners, if they want to connect with you, either through your online or clinical presence, how they might find you. And we'll be sure to include those links as well. Thank you so much. I do. I have a link tree that has all my um, links. I have a YouTube channel, Montgomery Fertility, that you can watch my, I give a lot of educational presentations. I have an Instagram channel where I give short clips and shorter versions of what I talk about. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn and I regularly post there. And I have a blog channel on Medium where sometimes I do. In fact, I wrote a blog about Uncle Fertility on my one, the latest one I wrote. So sometimes I like to write some sort of insightful article where I try to digest current science in a meaningful way and share it with people. So YouTube, LinkedIn, Medium, Instagram. I'm on Facebook as well. All of, uh, all of, all of the ways of finding you. Well, yeah, yeah so you can go to my, my tree has it all. And if you go Perfect. to my website, everything is on my website as well. MontgomeryFertilityCenter.com. Thank you. And it sounds like you're very busy with both the clinical work and also this kind of outreach and education. So thank you. Yes. You. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. As you know, my goal is to share with you the most helpful information that moves you towards emotional well-being. If you have suggestions or questions, I'd love to hear those. And I also always appreciate a rating that will help others find this valuable content. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. Please note that while I am a clinical doctor, this podcast is not a substitute for nor should be taken as medical advice. No specific health advice is being given on this podcast and no physician-client relationship is created by you listening to this podcast. All information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only.